Hi everyone, this is the Northeast Law Review podcast. I'm Neve. I'm Matt. And later on, we're going to be talking to a former Newcastle Law School student. Um, but right now, Matt and I are just going to have a chat. It's episode 10, which is absolutely crazy that we've managed to get out 10 episodes. Um, as we've had some great guest episodes and we've got some great episodes coming up as well that are in the works. Um, but it's just been it's been weird to think that this year's gone so quickly. I don't know what you think about this, Matt, how we've reached number 10. Yeah, no, I mean, the fact that I think I did meet you last year in person, maybe once, but we haven't actually met up physically all year. Um, and we've still sort of been able to have some sort of podcast series going on. Um, I do think the fact that it's been on Zoom has probably helped in many ways. It's sort of maybe been easier to get people together and things like that if they're not. Uh, if definitely if not in Newcastle um, but yeah no it's been great I've loved it um, doing it alongside sort of my third year it's been at times I don't know I don't know at times yeah there's been busy maybe weeks but um, I've loved it it's been sort of a nice thing to have on the side and um, less sort of for we're not worrying about getting graded on what we're doing and just sort of relax into it yeah and it's nice to hear about things that it's nice nice to learn about things mm. without that academic pressure so it's like oh like that's really interesting but I'm not going to be graded on it so I don't need to remember anything about it yeah yeah I just love the fact that we can ask almost any question and just keep it open as, as we like um we don't need to sort of be experts on it it's been great yeah um I think Sarah's one that whole project to me was just so interesting um and almost like the fact that I almost felt because I've done stuff with Sarah through this peer mentoring this year and the fact that I didn't even know that that was a thing sort of shocked me because it's a massive piece of work that she's working on whilst teaching and yeah I think that just realizing that the teachers lecturers do a lot of really cool stuff outside of teaching is sort of yeah I've definitely learned that this year. Yeah it's been really nice to kind of highlight that there are there's more that academics do than stand at the front of a lecture mm. theatre they're actually engaging with their own research and then teaching their research to students and creating amazing projects and going to amazing talks or rather not going anywhere they're just doing them on zoom to for amazing people and organizations yeah. um but yeah it's just been great it's been a great opportunity yeah no it'd be cool to look back um and see stuff going on next year the year after maybe um but yeah no I've loved every minute um but yeah so I guess what what have you been working on in your degree at the minute I know we've had a little chat there before we started recording but how's your week month going just before Easter oh it's been it's been so busy um I've got I've had a couple of bits of coursework due in um which have been quite challenging so that's uh stressing me out a bit at the moment um and then we've had mooting as well which has been which was really good um I had never actually done it before and so it was a really good opportunity to kind of learn those skills and get grilled by um get grilled by our meeting coordinator in the uh with all the judicial intervention which was quite intense and um yeah just trying to keep on top of work really um just kind of got used to it now got into Mm. a rhythm I think with just having to sit down and get it done and not stress about it how about you how's your month been yeah similar I think it's probably March end of maybe February March um probably the busiest period of 
maybe even the, the whole degree. Um, but okay, yeah, good. I think I'm a bit more lucky. I live with a couple um, of guys who have got free essays due. Um, I think people that go for the sort of corporate law, company, commercial, employment sort of stuff, they've all sort of managed to have essays due in the same week. Um, so I think people, um, not just my friends, are busy. But for me, yeah, I've, I mean, I got a couple of modules finished before Christmas, so I was saying to you, and um, I've sort of had stuff to do almost every other week. I've had an essay or something due, um, so I've been busy, but it's kind of been nicely spread. So I'm doing a succession um, problem question this week, uh, which has been fun. If you, The way I looked at it is uh, when you get some criminal problem questions, they are chaotic and a bit sort of crazy because they're trying to cover all the bases if you look at a succession problem question, you'll see that it's probably 10 times as chaotic. Um, so yeah, there's one of, the, one of the issues that made me laugh almost was that in a will, a guy left a set of bicycles to a bicycle club. And what we have to do is distinguish whether it's the Newcastle upon time bike club or the Newcastle underline bike club, because there's a big problem with how he's written it. Um, so that's the sort of stuff that you look at for succession, um, but it's been a great module. Um, so that's my last thing, Jude. And then looking forward to it. something of a break for Easter, but at the same time, last sort of push and, and gathering up all the work ready for exams. Now, as much as I've as much as I've loved doing, like the content I've done this year has been great. We've had some really interesting things in. At the moment in EU, we're doing citizenship, um, which is mm. actually um, Sylvia DeMars, her research area. And so she's really interested in it. And so that makes me really interested in it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but I'm really looking forward to choosing um, some modules for next year. Uh, we had a talk yes. about it the other day. And so it's kind of quite scary because then it's kind of like the beginning of the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it goes quick the last year. When I say that it is March. We've still got a few months, but um yeah yeah there's loads of choice and as you're saying there's more choice this for you next year um and yeah I think it was the same in the last year it's a lot of sort of niche share and, and a lot more lectures and this sort of more specific um topics so I'm, I'm sure you'll love it yeah definitely there's a lot of choice and so it's gonna be a really difficult decision <laughs> yeah I think we will now uh, jump into the main bit of the podcast and we will we'll introduce our um, guests for today. Today we are talking to a former Newcastle Law School student, Maya French-Adams, about her life after law school, her research project, and a little bit about her interest in competition law. Hi Maya, how are you? Hi Neve and Matt. Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Busy, um, but lots of exciting things coming up in the future. Um, what about you guys? How's it going for you? Yeah, good, busy, busy as always. Um, but Easter's just around the corner now. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm good as well. So you graduated um, in the back last year, last summer. What have you been doing since then? Yeah, so since I graduated last summer, I did a summer internship in competition law, doing research work um, for a US attorney there. And then I was also doing a lot of VAC scheme and training contract interviews and applications. So that kept me very busy. Towards the end of the summer, I was fortunate enough to have got two training contract offers. So 
I then firmed one of the offers and had to think about what I'd be doing in the meantime um, because I'm not starting my office till September of this year so I had a bit of a gap which I needed to fill so I was looking around for paralegal opportunities and I actually came across this job at Legal Cheek which was events coordination work originally um, but now I've been working at Legal Cheek for around six months and I do a combination of both editorial stuff alongside the virtual events coordination. Um, for example, our virtual vacation scheme, which we have coming up this spring, I'm coordinating that. So yeah, it's been really good fun. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like you've sort of done a lot of cool stuff since graduating. Um, but well done on getting training contracts, um, first of all, I'd say. Um, and what sort of, I guess there's probably maybe people listening that, applied and maybe not been successful this year and, and maybe we'll apply next year what sort of things from your personal experience would you I guess um advise people do what sort of yeah what sort of how, how what are the best ways of approaching it um yeah. yeah um I would just say try and get as much experience as possible I think a lot of the stuff I did alongside my degree really helped me so in terms of like the pro bono work which I was doing um additional work I was doing as a ULO campus ambassador just try and get any extra work which you can really it doesn't have to be commercially focused because anything you do you're able to talk about the skills you've gained from it and how they transfer into commercial practice so that would be my first piece of advice is just to take all experience you can get really um, and I think also what was really important for me was just really narrowing it down and figuring figuring out what I wanted from my mm. training contract rather than just kind of going into it with little thought. Um, so I think it's a process and that the first year of applications, it's, you're probably not going to be that successful because you haven't really figured out exactly what you want and therefore you're not that well-placed to justify that in an interview, for example. Um, so I think, yeah, working backwards and figuring out exactly what you want and narrowing down the firms based on that then when you come to interview you're going to have a really kind of comprehensive idea of the process you've gone through to get to that firm and therefore be really well placed to explain why that firm is best for you and also just trying to overcome rejection as well because I think anyone who's secured a training contract has faced a lot of rejection um, so I guess just taking one piece of kind of positivity from a rejection process and thinking about how it's going to benefit you in future I'd say um yeah yeah no great um so I guess we could move on to um your research project if that's all right so <laughs> if you want to explain a little bit to the listeners um what is the research project um what did you decide to do it on and why did you decide to do it sure um, so the research project is a 4,000 word essay on a topic of your choice relating, well, when I did it, it was relating to law and emerging technologies. Um, so I wanted to do it because I didn't want to do a dissertation. I wanted to do six modules instead, but I also wanted the chance to have ownership over an essay or a project. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I wanted to do it for those reasons. I think also I 
knew that I can make it quite commercially focused, especially given like the rise of law tech, et cetera. Um, I realized that it was a good opportunity to do a research project in an area which I could kind of tailor to um, like legal practice and something which would be good to talk about in commercial interviews. Um, and also I want to be challenged in a different way in that the research project, whilst 80% of it is marked according to your essay, 20% falls on the presentation. So I wanted to challenge myself to um, do a presentation and be graded on that. And um, also the presentation, you had to do it as if you were talking to legal practitioners rather than legal academics. So it was quite different in that sense as well. Um, and then in terms of what I did my research project on, um, so I did it on essentially how we hold autonomous vehicles civilly liable going forward. Um, so essentially I just looked at the current settled framework for um, civil liability issues for uh, conventional vehicles. And then I went through the routes which you can go down in terms of civil liability, such as negligence and product liabilities, and basically explored the deficiencies within the current framework and how the current framework basically wouldn't work in the context of autonomous vehicles, in my view. Um, so I argued that basically we're trying to shoehorn autonomous vehicles into an ill-fitting precedent and a settled framework which won't work in this context. Um, and then I argue that we should therefore depart from fault-based liability here and move towards a stricter liability regime based on enterprise theory rationales. Um, so that's it in summary, um, which is quite hard to do when it's 4,000 words. No, thanks for that. I was just going to say that I think that, that the, the idea of doing a presentation and as if you're pitching to like a legal audience, almost like a, like a real life sort of pitch. I think that's great because I know a lot of assessment centres, um, You when you're applying to become a, a solicitor or get on a training contract, whatever it is, vacation scheme, there are exercises where you present, you know, like an argument and may, maybe it's not specifically on like a area of law like you've gone into, but just that practice of pitching and, and presenting, um, I think that would probably be great. Do you feel like that helped at all with when you were actually making your applications or, or yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the presentation unfortunately had to go ahead virtually um, due to the way things went last year, um, but it was still really good practice, and it was essentially the same. You just were doing it over Zoom, um, and yeah, it was really good also because other people from the law school joined, and they would really press you on questions at the end. Um, so you really had to be able to defend your viewpoint and justify it really well. Um, and the questions were all unforeseen. So I think that was really good in terms of just being able to rationally think about how you answer those questions, which is also a skill you need when you're pressing interviews. Um, but yeah, it was really useful. Actually, I when I was interviewing for DAC Beechcroft, um, it so happened that I had an insurance partner who was interviewing me. Um, so I brought up the project and it, it's got a lot of insurance related issues. Um, so yeah, it was really interesting to talk about it. And he was, you could tell he was visibly like enthusiastic that I'd done a research project in this area. Um, so yeah, it was really nice. We just had a really good discussion about 
his thoughts around it, my thoughts mm. around it. Um, and I think it was just a really good way of showing that I was interested in all these commercial areas because it did cover like insurance law, kind of negligence, product liability. It was very cross-disciplinary. So it was a case of kind of piecing it all together because there was no, it wasn't like there was one person in the law school which understood this entire project. It was a case of me having to go to different people and figuring it all out together. So um, yeah, it was definitely really helpful when it came to interviews and the likes. Yeah, no, I bet. And how did you cater your presentation for practitioners? Because I think when you create a presentation, you're not necessarily always thinking about who the audience is, but I think if you're given a specific audience that could like present, a, could be quite challenging. How did you find it? I think the key to the presentation in terms of it being geared towards pra practitioners um, was that you were just giving them the information they needed. You're just telling them exactly what the issue was where we are now and where we should be. So it was kind of just breaking it down into simpler bullet points because when you're in practice, your client doesn't need to hear all about the theory, et cetera. They just want to know what they do in that instance. Um, so yeah, I think it was really good practice in just kind of holding back and not going into the academic side too much and just going through it like you would um, if you were, if you say had a client who was saying, where do you think the future of liability is going with these vehicles as I'm in this industry and you're just breaking it down so they can clearly see the options. Um, and it also, I guess I actually had practiced doing that when I was on a vacation scheme the year before at Slaughter and May, she actually asked me to do a presentation on gender pay gap reporting and what the obligations were for companies there. Um, so I think I had some practice already of how to do that in that format. Um, but yeah, it was just very different to what you otherwise are expected to do on a law degree. Um, so I think it also was helpful as well in that it was slightly bridging the gap between what you do say on a law degree and the LPC in that you are becoming more practical focused. So, yeah. Hmm. Um, okay, so... So that's sort of, yeah, that's a good picture of sort of the skills and things that you've got from it. But what sort of arguments and, and issues and, and yeah, what was the content of the project? Sure. Um, so essentially, I start I started out by just laying out what the current framework is in terms of um, civil liability and how you'd sue under the current system, which is in place and has actually been confirmed by the government via the Automated and Electrical Vehicles Act 2018. Um, and then I start to kind of dissect it and go through the process and explain where the issues arise. Um, so for example, I start off by going through the negligence route and explaining what some of the issues would be there. So the negligence route, as you'll all know as law students, um, is based on the reasonable person standard, um, which is a human standard which is supposed to be assessed completely objectively. Um, so then I start to explore how you'd use that standard in the AV context. Um, so how do you apply a wholly human standard to assessing deficient software when an autonomous vehicle software malfunctions and damage is caused as a result of such? Um, so I kind of discuss whether 
you could extend legal personhood in this instance to make um, autonomous vehicles liable under the reasonable person standard um, and discuss some of the issues which would arise there because once you're giving kind of AI legal personhood that comes with a lot of other issues as legal personhood grants a lot of different rights in other areas as well. Then I look into things such as the reasonable robot or the re reasonable algorithm and whether you'd want to have that as the standard under negligence law and basically come to the conclusion that it doesn't really make a huge amount of sense to have say like the reasonable robot standard because it's almost a juxtaposition in that you have a standard of reasonableness which is supposed to be wholly objective and then you're interjecting that with a very subjective standard regarding like an algorithm or how a robot works um, so I kind of think it undermines the whole purpose of the reasonable person standard um, and then also once you get to a certain level of autonomy within autonomous vehicles kind of once you surpass level three autonomy you're going to have basically little to no driving done by humans anyway so the purpose of having a completely human standard becomes pretty redundant. And then I move on to discuss product liability, which is the other route you can go down um, to sue on a fault-based um, allocation. Um, and I discuss some of the current case law, which is out there. And basically it seems that there's a bit of a dispute as to whether intangible software in the first place can be classed as a product under the Consumer Protection Act. So it's unclear as to whether you could actually sue via this route if all of the software is intangible. So it's transferred over the cloud um, rather than on a disk, for example. Um, and then there's also flaws in the product liability route because of the developmental or state-of-the-art defense, which is under the Consumer Protection Act. Um, it's kind of allows you a defense where you can say this wasn't foreseeable due to the state of scientific knowledge which was out there at the time, um, which then creates a very high burden of proof to disprove um, because you're going to have to have someone come in who knows that industry like really well and is able to say, no, actually based on the current scientific knowledge, you should have been able to change that algorithm to make it safer. Um, so yeah, I go through those two routes and explain basically how it's going to be really hard for claimants to pursue routes in those two areas. Um, and then I basically say that because of that, I think we need to move away from a fault-based system and towards a stricter liability system for the manufacturers and the software providers which are producing these vehicles. Um, so, and that's also based on enterprise liability, which is a kind of rationale which comes from US tort scholarship but essentially in its simplest form means that the losses which are caused by an enterprise should be borne by that enterprise so you're making everyone who is responsible for the creation of that risk liable for when something materializes from that risk and damage is caused so it would be a far simpler route of holding people liable for when autonomous vehicles um, inevitably crash or cause damage in some way. No, that that was a that was a really good <laughs> summary. Thanks, for that, Maya. Why do you think that the government decided to 
um, stay within the settled liability framework instead of like going down a new route and going towards the more US system that you talked about with um, enterprise liability? Yeah, I think they probably just did it to provide immediate certainty. So obviously lots of manufacturers are looking to increase the levels of autonomy in their cars and by just producing this act in 2018 and saying look we're going to just stick within the settled regime it in theory provided investor certainty and meant that they were able to progress um, in terms of their development Um, and I think also they probably did it to look like they were at the forefront of this tech revolution by saying we've got our autonomous vehicle act which is i believe the first in europe as well um so it was almost slightly um it was more of a statement rather than um something they'd really considered that well um and i also think probably they thought we'll address the intricacies of it further down the line because we're not at really high levels of autonomy just yet but we will be in kind of 10 to 15 years so i think they did it just to provide some certainty for now and then they'll reassess it later on. Um, but I mean, by around 2035, we're expected to have, I think, a third of vehicles which have basically no driver. So it is an issue which is coming up in the not too, too distant future. Um, so I'm sure they'll have to legislate on it again. I mean, they have, um, like the Law Commission is producing their third consultation on this. I think they're releasing it basically now um so yeah I think they'll definitely revisit it but in 2018 it was just easier to say we'll just stick to the current regime yeah it's kind of got some similar themes to we spoke to Sarah Morley in our um in a, a couple of episodes ago and she was talking about um their project is kind of I mean it's about novel being so it's not really like it's kind of going one step further than um, or artificial intelligence, but it was kind of saying that we should, you know, legislate to, push, they kind of argued that they should legislate to preempt the, um, the kind of problems that will be faced. Do you think that obviously there's an element of corporate social responsibility when you're developing this AI, but do you think that, there needs to be perhaps more regulation beforehand is so it's more preparatory as opposed to reactionary to when problems actually arise. I think that if you hold them liable in this way and you know that they're always directly liable, you're almost forcing them to self-regulate because if you know you're always going to have to compensate those which... Um, which face damage as a result of, I don't know, your failures in your software, then you're incentivized to then produce better software and innovate again. Um, so in that sense, the two are kind of a knock-on effect of each other. Um, yeah, but I do think generally as well, stricter regulation would be of benefit um, at the very start of the supply chain, I guess, um, because then you're obviously reducing the chance of harm further down the line. Um, But yeah, that's why I think enterprise liability is just the best way to solve the issue really, because um, you're just 
you're kind of it's almost like there's an equitable element to it as well in that those which are engaged in creating quite a risky product and profit from creating that are then those which have to suffer loss if it is defective really really interesting um and yeah i'll touch on what you've said about talking to sarah last week i found that so interesting um looking to the future um and you mentioned how was it a third and a third of cars in 2035 which i I, I can't believe i didn't realize that it would be that sort of quick um so the when you were doing this i have not i've not to do loads of it because i've not done a dissertation or a research topic but most of my piece of coursework was in isolation and and it's a lot of time you're looking at maybe law in the past and, 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 and to now and not as much looking into the future so what was it like trying to almost gauge what's going to happen and 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 yeah and, and sort of work out because you not not stuff hasn't happened yet but what was it like trying to yeah preempt it I guess it was really difficult I think because when you're doing a research project you're having to find an area in the literature which no one has really mm. looked at properly just yet so it was almost a case of me just putting all these ideas together and producing something which hadn't really been covered before um and yeah really difficult because everything you read would kind of say well this is going to be an issue in the future I don't know how we're going to solve this and I was the person which was having to think how do we solve this um <laughs> before there was before there's really been much discussion around it. Mm. Um, but there, there, there is some stuff out there and kind of, I mean, a lot of people are discussing how the current routes via negligence and product liability do have sufficient faults in this context. Um, but I think it was piecing the issues with the current system, but then thinking about how you actually do that logistically going forward, which was the hardest part, because I think a law school, obviously you're taught to think about things in a theoretical sense and Mm. ideas you're not really tasked with having to put the law together and see how it all interconnects and how different stakeholders will be affected so yeah that's what I mean in terms of I had to go to say like Richard Mullender talk about negligence and then someone else to talk about insurance so um but it was really good and like really rewarding because Mm. I felt like I was doing something which maybe someone had never really done before um but certainly very difficult, especially in terms of the practicalities and like when we change the system, like once, I think I ended up saying that essentially once around 25% of um, cars are highly automated vehicles, so that's level four or five autonomy, then we'd start to introduce a new system because then prior to that, you have the issue of having two systems running concurrently and all the issues which that arise, uh, all the issues which arise from that. So it was really difficult, but very challenging and fun. No, that that's that sounds really interesting. Um, yeah, so I guess we could move on to um, like your interest, which you've kind of already touched on, um, which is competition law. So, what drew you to this topic? Um, I know we we're about to study in EU law, but. Uh, from what I've heard at like what you study in EU law compared to actual competition law is quite different yeah yeah I think 
Obviously, competition law is so wide ranging and you're only seeing a very small part of it in EU law. Um, and you're also doing it in a problem question type way. It's always assessed by a problem question. Um, so the way you're looking at it is slightly different. You're not really looking at the policy issues as much. Um, but in terms of why I became interested in competition law, I'd say that I've always been pretty interested in consumer and trade law. Um, as so competitional when it came about, it just kind of made sense, I guess. Um, I really like how it has a lot of different dimensions. So you have competition policy on one hand, which is log largely regulatory and advisory. Um, and then you have competition litigation on the other hand, which is pretty contentious and you're kind of arguing around um, sometimes language in terms of market definitions etc um i also really enjoyed how it's underpinned by a lot of economic and political theory um so it feels pretty cross-disciplinary in that yeah you're looking at different economic models and what they'd say about its impact on trade um but also it's quite political in that um you'll see very different schools of thought especially in the us so you have kind of Harvard School of Thought, Chicago School of Thought, there's lots of rival schools of thought and there's a lot of different people which think very differently about the aims of competition law and what it serves to do. And I think also as well, it was really interesting to me because it was somewhere which I could practice in, in a commercial law firm. Um, and things like M&A deals, they always have a lot of competition related concerns. Um, and also that it's very current. I think, especially in the present climate of big tech and the debate around regulation there, it's um, something which a lot of people are looking into and considering if we need to do it differently going forward in its application to tech. Um, and yeah, I guess politicians are getting increasingly involved in this area of law as well. Like you've seen with the recent national security bill going through in the UK um and thresholds over kind of mergers and stuff and foreign investment um so yeah i just really liked how it's very cross-disciplinary and something which you can ultimately practice in a commercial sense as well yeah um i know Neve, you've mentioned about sort of you're looking to pick your modules and things like that and you're starting to do it in the eu i'm doing competition law um nice. and i've actually waiting we're supposed to get it yesterday but it's it's been delayed till tuesday from our first um essay it was technically a blog but it was basically just a 2000 word essay and it was on all the things you've mentioned so it was about basically um discussing whether um it's basically is it time for the neo brandeis um school of thought to to come up and and talking about things like big tech um and because it was in a blog format um you could almost do normal sort of academic stuff referencing but you'd also bring in like hyperlinks from um press releases and things like that so i talked a lot about um last year's trial um of the big tech and found that really interesting so i, I understand why yeah why you could be drawn to that sort of stuff yeah it's so interesting actually that was the um like the neo brandis slash hipster mm. antitrust um yeah. wherever you sit on the debate um that was actually the subject of the kind of research assistant stuff i was doing with jonathan galloway um, like this time two years ago. Um, so yeah, that really drew me in as well, I think, just because there's such a clear divide. Um, yeah, and it's just so interesting to see 
like a new populist movement come forward within it um, because you have kind of like the old school people like the Chicago School mm -hmm. of Thought and they're very set on the consumer welfare standard. Um, but I think a lot of the younger generation of people in competition law are very keen to kind of change things up and really focus on deconstructing market power. Um, yeah. So I think especially with the tech stuff at the moment, it's going to be really interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, it's it's it was really it was hard to argue to sort of argue for and against and things and could then finish with a sort of what you think going forward. And um obviously it was a big trial last year with the big tech Amazon and things. And I just couldn't help think that as much as there's a lot of criticism of the likes of Amazon, um, you know, people making the criticism are probably getting a parcel the next day from them. So it's it's so it's that I it's it's really it's hard, it's interesting, um, specifically the big tech stuff. Um but yeah, as I say, the third year module is it was was good in sort of bringing that to life a little bit more. And what was it like um, being a research assistant? Like, what did that kind of involve? Um, so it was basically just collecting. So just collecting a range of articles which were on the subject area, but also ones which would be really good to reference. So, um, so essentially he was creating um, an article on kind of the emerging neo-brandist slash hipster antitrust movement. And he wanted someone to do like the initial groundwork um, in terms of kind of where it came from, some of the key academics. So Lisa Khan, for example, she um, wrote about the antitrust paradox and that's kind of where it all kickstarted. Um, so it was just a case of finding this information, but presenting it in a way which was really helpful for someone which was kind of just starting out on their research. So, yeah, I guess when you're doing your own research, you do it in your own way, in your own style, which makes sense to you. But I had to make a conscious effort to make sure it made sense for someone who was just approaching this for the first time. I mean, I'm sure he knew the debates going on, et cetera, but, um, for someone who was looking to write about it for the first time um so yeah i think it was around kind of 10 hours in total i spent um just collecting research around it um and splitting it up into like the different schools of thought and just presenting some initial ideas of where his paper could go with it mm. did that sort of experience help when you did the internship at the is it the academic society for competition law yeah um I think yeah definitely in that I learned just how to research in a very efficient way um but I think with the internship with the academic society for competition law it was less research focused it was more we were all like given designated reports from different countries which were discussing how they thought um competition policy um, should be applied in the digital era. So I was given the BRIC countries. So I was just looking at my report and basically just picking out all the important information about what the report was saying about things such as self-preferencing um, and different theories of harm, which we're used to in a non-digital context in competition law. Um, so yeah, it, it was less research intensive and it was more about dissecting research reports which were given to us and uh fi final question on competition law um 
you have an essay um, on competition law going in the journal, the Northeast Law Review Journal. Do you want to explain to our readers a little bit about what that, what, which area of competition law that's about? Um, so it was about the features of a competition authority and which of the features I thought was the most important feature and particularly which feature was most important when actually setting up a new competition authority. So in the context of young competition authorities, which were only about five to 10 years old. Um, so it was a process of looking at both the formal and substantial features um, around competition authorities. So things like kind of enforcement outcomes, um, independence, accountability, etc. And I came to conclusion, looking at both the formal and substantial features that um, independence was the most important feature to the early su success of a competition authority. Um, so I had to look at quite a lot of empirical studies and look at things around kind of input and output value and how you measure performance success at a competition authority. Um, and then think about that in the context of a new competition authority. So you kind of had to look into case studies of authorities which were pretty young around the world and see um, which factors had influenced their success. So I looked at things like the South African Competition Authority, which is a pretty young competition authority, but has struggled a lot due to its lack of independence from things politically. Um, so therefore use that case to highlight how um, lack of independence can really impede the success of a competition authority. Um, so yeah, my conclusion was that independence was um, most value, valuable in terms of its input value, um, reputationally, and in terms of credibility, and also leads to better accountability. Um, and also the most valuable in terms of output value empirically and the extent to which it can reach its performance objectives. That sounds, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, I know Dave Reed has mentioned the South African um, authority a few times in the lectures this year about it being a bit, yeah, a bit different to others. Um, but yeah, yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, I guess we could uh, wrap this up here. We've been chatting for quite a while. So, yeah. Fina, so just kind of, you've mentioned that you've now got a training contract. So I guess what's, what is that? How's that going? What are you looking to do for the LPC and things like that? Sure. Um, yeah, so I have a training contract at KNL Gates, which is um, a US law firm, international law firm. It has 44 offices internationally, so very international. Um, so in terms of going forward, I'll be yeah starting my LPC at the University of Law's Manchester campus in September. I think I'm also looking to do the either the LPC LLM or the LPC MC um, there as well, just to add on an additional master's. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm doing from September. And then after that, I'll be joining the firm. Um, and yeah, I hope to do a seat in competition law, fingers crossed. Um, and yeah, we'll see where it takes me, I guess. So yeah, thanks a lot, Maya. Um, really interesting. We've had one former student on uh, a bit earlier in 2021. 
but it's been great to have another one on. Um, I think going forward, it's as, if we can get as many as we can on, um, then that'd be great because it's it's good to have the mix of what you're doing outside. What have you done since graduating? Um, what sort of things you're interested in in the law? Um, and yeah, what 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 the futures hold? So thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks very much for having me. Um, and thanks for listening. If there are any Newcastle Law students listening who would like to get involved as a uh, as a host, then feel free to email us. Um, there's a couple now or free now, I think, um, that you can listen back to. You can get pick up some ideas. Um, or if there's any academics or lead professionals who would like to come on and talk about their work, like Maya has today, then yeah, please email nelr at newcastle.ac.uk. And um, thanks a lot, Neve. No, thank you. And thank you, Maya, as well. Thank you both.